escape pod 148 March 6, 2008 Today's story Homecoming at the Borderlands Cafe by Carol McDonald. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Our story this week is social science fiction of a sort we don't often present. It doesn't posit major technological progress or new human capabilities. Instead, it takes us into a future with a fractured United States, with different nations and sharply divided cultures. Fair warning, I'm about to exhibit some national bias and spend this intro talking about the United States. For our listeners everywhere else in the world, please don't take this as inherent centrism. That's just the springboard from this story. Send me more good stories set where you are, and I'll try to learn more and talk about that instead. So, the remapped United States has a lot of precedent in science fiction. Enough so that one of my college professors, Bud Foote, who taught the science fiction class at Georgia Tech, once wrote an atlas of imaginary Americas. He had the world from Heinlein's Friday and Orson Scott Card's Alvin Maker series, and many others. I think this sort of speculation, this assertion that we're a nation with so many nations in us, isn't uniquely American. There's plenty of other countries in the world that were rammed together from smaller states, and sadly many of them are expressing their differences much more violently. But it is very telling. When it comes to national identity, we carry a lot of pride on the surface, but our history really makes us schizophrenic. We're Puritans and we're individualists. We're a melting pot and equal opportunity, and yet we're acutely racially aware. We were the first country founded on a philosophical ideal, personal freedom, and the last country in the world to give up slavery. And we want to maintain so many heritages and cultural prides at once. I live in Georgia, and it's not uncommon here at public events to hear the songs Proud to be an American and I Wish I Was in Dixie played back to back. Sometimes I wonder if I'm the only one who gets the irony. There's a lot here that needs to be examined, and most of the time we don't want to examine it. It gets complicated, and we don't frequently want to feel judged by our entertainment. But it's one of the roles of science fiction to challenge the world we're in, to reveal its merits and flaws by comparison to other possibilities. And sometimes, it makes us look at the way things are and think, you know, it could be a lot worse. And with that, we present Homecoming at the Borderlands Cafe by Carol McDonald. Miss McDonald lives in New York State and is an established writer of Christian, supernatural, and ethnic stories. She's a columnist for several Christian and African-American magazines, and her first novel, Wind Follower, was published by Juno Books last fall. This story first appeared in the anthology Jigsaw Nation, Tales of an Alternate America, published by Spire. So sit a spell and have yourself a piece of Yvonne's apple pie. It's story time. Homecoming at the Borderlands Cafe by Carol McDonald We are sitting, my folks, my brother Charlie and me, in the Borderlands Cafe in Womack, when this 32 Datsunaki drives up, and this young guy, a little younger than me, gets out. He doesn't come into the cafe, though. He stands beside the car, in the falling snow, talking to a woman who's half in, half out the door. From what I can see by the streetlight, she's young, too. No more than twenty, twenty-one on the outside. But the weird thing is that she isn't white like him, or like us. She's black, real pretty, with what looks like a baby in her arms. But neither of them are moving. 
They're just staying there not moving for a good five minutes, like it's a showdown or something, and the snow's falling all around them. After a while, the woman pushes the car door wider and puts both feet out the car. She does this real awkwardly, like she knows she's in a place where God knows she doesn't want to be, but for whatever reason, she's trapped, and she's got to do what she's got to do. And from where I'm at, a window near the cafe entrance, I can see that, yeah, it is a baby she's holding, a newborn probably, because she holds the tiny bundle like she's afraid she'll drop it, the way my cousin Krista used to hold her baby when she first brought him home. The guy takes the gal by the waist, holds her like she'll break or shatter if the Wyoming wind even touches her face. He lifts the blanket off the baby's face, takes this quick look and smiles, then rubs the girl on her shoulder. When I see this, my chest tightens, because it's obvious they're together, and that's not common in our town, not since the secession. Being the wife of one of the largest ranch owners around, my mother gets involved in all kinds of Christian charities. She belongs to the Border Society and the Relocation Council, and has helped more than her fair share of escapees, but now she shakes her head and glances up at me. Christ, Mike, she says, this don't look good, don't look good at all. And, unfortunately, I know what she means. Ma's got a nervous smile on her face. Obviously, she's trying to smooth things out between her and me by picking on somebody else. It's the wrong way to go, though. I'm still thinking about the way she and my cousin got closer and closer to each other by lighting into Nona and me. I take another sip of coffee and try to get Nona off my mind. We're all staring through the window at the couple. Except Dad. He seems to be making it a point to look in the other direction. Dad's kind-hearted. Too kind-hearted, if you ask me. And he stresses out about things way too much. Let's hope they're just on vacation, Mom says, out here trying to soak up some local color. You know how those Columbia folks look at us, like we're backward or something? Dad nods. Not because he really agrees with what Mom said. Heck, an interracial couple, a black person. Ain't gonna cross the border and enter the Confederate Republic just for vacation. But I suppose Dad feels he's got to do something. And nodding is something. He's looking at me, and I can just see the tiniest bit of shame in his eyes. Like he's remembering the argument about Nona, and he's dying to apologize for everything that's happened. And now this. His hair's real short, Mom says, looking out the window. Like our preacher's kid. That type usually have a ponytail or something. I don't ask her what type. We all know what she means. My brother Charlie says, They don't look like the type to shack up together. And by the way he's holding her as they come up them stairs, she's his wife all right. I keep thinking I know the guy. I'm thinking the same thing too. Or maybe I know his family. Something keeps just almost coming to the edge of my mind. His name is on the tip of my tongue. They approach the cafe's top step. Then the girl stops suddenly, turns around, and retraces her steps. She opens the door of the Datsunaki, gets back in, and sits down. She glances at the baby and shakes her head. For a second or two, they are two silent people staring at each other in the snowfall. Then he starts pleading with her. A real tense discussion, you can tell, because she's shaking her head real adamantly. Like there's no way, but no way, she's going to come into the cafe. We don't see a lot of mixed couples around here, and we're not like some of the other states in the Confederate United Republic. It's not like they're going to get killed or lynched or nothing. But it's tough just the same. 
And although it's weird enough that they're an interracial couple, it seems to me that they're arguing about something bigger than merely coming into this cafe. I don't know any blacks. You got to go to Laramie or Cheyenne to see them. But I watch Cosby when it's on. The Confederacy ain't as bad as the folks in Columbia might think. Sure, everyone's segregated, but it's all equal. And the Platte County School District is pretty good about African American History Month. The kid says something, and the gal stops talking, like what he said hit home. She shrugs, opens the car door, and once again walks to the cafe steps. Womack has all of 200 people. Everyone knows everyone else. But like I said, no blacks. There's an Indian reservation in Lander, about two or three hundred miles away, where my ex-girlfriend Nona lives, but no other minorities. It was pretty awful after the secession, and some of the whites weren't real keen on having minorities around. So the Pakistanis and the Arabs and, of course, all the blacks left town. Some, even the religious ones, went to Colombia. Tough choice, but I guess they felt they'd take their chances. So by now, the couples come through the door, and everyone starts stealing glances at them. I say stealing because that's what it feels like, like our eyes are robbers, stealing their comfort. The odd thing is how the cafe kind of divides itself. The middle-aged folks, those born in the early days of the secession, well, they all have this angry look on their faces. They're not making any bones about hiding how they feel about this couple intruding on their cafe. The older folks, though, the ones who lived in the former United States, they're better at not staring. Not that they want them here or anything, but they're trying to make the gal and the guy feel comfortable. After all, they must be damned uncomfortable, a mixed couple in the middle of Glendo, but this is mere etiquette. And we're all pretty uncomfortable. So the middle-aged folks are staring, and the old folks keep talking to each other, staring at their coffee and out the window and at the plastic home interiors pictures on the wall. But we all know what's what. As for the teenagers and the elementary school kids, they can't keep their eyes off her. She's black, and none of them's ever seen a black girl in person before. I mean, they watch the video music channel on bootleg satellite, even though it's forbidden, and they see black people singing and dancing and talking on some of their stolen vids. But that ain't exactly like having a black friend down the block, is it? And I, although I finished eating a couple of minutes ago, can't seem to rise up from my table. All I can think is, if I get up now, these two are gonna think I'm prejudiced. And God knows I'm not. The funny thing is that the girl is staring at everyone, too. She gives the entire cafe this once-over, a quick sweeping glance, as if we're all members of the clan or something. I know the look. My Shoshone girlfriend was a master of it. I tell myself that if she's anything like Nona, I pity the guy, because these sensitive minority women are definitely a piece of work. So after glaring around at everyone, this gal stares out the window, like she's already summed us up. The guy orders for him. He doesn't look at the menu, just tells Sandy the waitress what he wants. Then he asks a question, which I can't quite hear, although their table is two tables away from us, but Sandy nods. She walks away, and after two minutes, Yvonne, the owner, walks in, shouts real loud, Well, damn, what are you doing back from California? Married, huh? This your kid? So there's all this hugging and kissing, and Yvonne's trying her darndest to be friendly to the girl. But the girl's just staring out the window, as if not looking at us will make us white folks all disappear. And for a moment, I find myself getting angry at the girl. 
Heck, if she hates and fears us Confederate whites so much, why the heck is she here? There's black towns she and her husband can stop at. Then I remember the lynchings that happened in the first months of the secession. They happened in places like Idaho and Iowa, not here in Wyoming, and all of the lynched weren't black. But still, I can kind of understand where the gal's coming from. So I let my anger against her subside a bit, but not much. Like I said, all these touchy minority women are all the same, and she's reminded me more and more of Nona as the minutes go by. So then, about ten minutes later, this older couple comes into the cafe. They stop at the counter and give the place a searching look. I recognize them as the Garrisons, who own a ranch by Wheatland. Dad turns pale, like almost white, and his left hand's rubbing his forehead. And suddenly I recognize the guy who's been making us all uncomfortable. It's Bradley Garrison. My cousins went to school with him. And I tell myself all hell's gonna break loose. More reason for the girl to get nervous. The Garrisons are hardliners. And Bradley bringing home a black wife is about as upsetting to them as, say, my wanting to marry Nona was to Mom. I think of the way Mom and my cousin, years of mutual anger dispelled, tore into Nona and me on New Year's night when I mentioned we were going to get married. I still remember the hurt on Nona's face when she saw me just sitting there, not defending her, not saying a word. My brother Charlie looks at me, like he's looking through me, and I can tell what he's thinking, that at least Bradley is not a coward. I remember Brad from high school. No, Brad has never been a coward. I want to say to Charlie, if Brad's not a coward, what's he doing back here then? Don't tell me he's homesick. Because everyone knows the United States of Columbia has started cracking down on conservative believers. And if Bradley were so galled on brave, he'd have stayed where he was instead of escaping back here. Marjorie Garrison looks around the cafe until she spots her son. Her face falls farther than the floor when she sees him. She nudges Hank, her husband, and together they walk towards Brad and the girl. And now I'm feeling sorry for the girl, because I know Marjorie Garrison. I know what she said about me and Nona. Me and Nona, of all people, and damn, we aren't even related to the woman. Without anyone telling me, I know this gal's gonna get reamed. I feel Mom's eyes on me. She's given me that look of hers, like I'm still thinking about Nona or something. I turn to my brother and say, Well, I have to go. Big day tomorrow, remember? But Charlie is still pissed that I allowed Nona to leave. He just sits there eating his sausage as slow as you please. And he tells Yvonne to get him a slice of apple pie topped with whipped cream. Of course, I could get up and leave. I could take Charlie's car, let the folks drop him off. But, like I said, Mom can see through me, and she's looking at me like somehow this thing with Bradley and the girl is a mirror reflecting my own life. So there I am watching Bradley and the girl and the garrisons and wishing the world would end, or at least that a hole would open up in the floor and swallow me up or something. And by now, it's clear there's some kind of war on, and everyone in the cafe has taken sides. There's the hardline contingent, and there's the let-me-just-pretend-nothing's-happening contingent. Looking around at the faces, I can pretty much tell which side most folks are on. Because it's a small town. I already know how most of my neighbors think. Womack people might like gossip, and we're all God-fearing, and many of us are racist as all get-out. But we all hate tension, especially family tension. Hank Garrison, Brad's dad, is a born peacemaker. 
The first thing he does is extend his hand to hold the baby. The girl gives him a look and then reluctantly hands him the baby. Hank takes the kid and pulls the blanket away from its face. I catch a glimpse. A pretty little girl with lots and lots of dark black hair. She's got a pink sweater on and wrapped up so snug and warm. He loosens the blankets a bit, like he thinks the baby's overheated or something, and rests the little girl on his shoulder. But Mrs. Garrison, she's got this victimized look on her face, as if the baby's some black mugger in Denver who has not only assaulted her family, but raped it. Her arms are crossed in front of her, and she's staring into space as if she's waiting for an apology. Mom turns to me. Poor Mrs. Garrison, she says, shaking her head. I feel for her, Brad going off and marrying someone who wouldn't fit in here. It's sad, so disrupting to the family. I nudge Charlie. He glances at me, says nothing, then returns to his pie. At this time, the cafe TV blares on, real loud-like. I turn and see Yvonne's hand on the controls. The blare of the TV subsides as the volume is turned down, but we can all still hear. The news is on. It's the African-American news channel out of Cheyenne. Separate but equal all the way, but it's not the news channel most folks in Womack usually watch. All the same, the news segment is so devastating we all have to watch. Some earthquake and tsunami has killed 80,000 people in Southeast Asia. The destruction is terrible. The cameraman focuses on a weeping Hindu man. A voiceover says the man is crying for his kids who were swept away by the flood. I'm not a crybaby or nothing, but seeing this guy, all I want to do is cry for him. Tears just flow down his face, and it looks like the guy's never going to stop crying. But behind me, I hear someone say, Serves him right. They have too many kids anyway. The world sure as heck ain't going to miss him. My brother Charlie rises suddenly from his seat. I grab him by the hem of his plaid shirt and plunk him back into his seat. That'd be all I need, my brother socking some guy over something that's none of his business. These women who seduce innocent white boys, Mom says. Think of all the heartache they cause. Our boys are so innocent, they don't know life. And these women are so free with sex. Christ, it's late, I say. Gotta get back and... Get back and do what? She says, interrupting me. It's not like you do anything. Either you're at Nona's or you're sitting around the house wasting your time. You have to find yourself a purpose, son. I don't answer her because I know she's right. It's not like I'm lazy or anything. It's more like I don't quite have a fix on my purpose yet. And certainly, it's not sitting around following cows all day long. It's like, she continues, our boys mistake the wiles of these women for love. They don't know you've got to share the same culture, the same race, to really understand what love is. Brad made a mistake. Look what he's doing to his poor mother. If you ask me, the sooner he divorces her, the better it'd be for all concerned. He could find a good wife, a nice white girl. Mom is nothing if not a master of overkill. I want to tell her to shut up, that I got the point a long time ago. But coming out and saying something as obvious as that would only cause trouble and make it look like we're some troubled family. And that's what this dinner is about, right? The fact that we're all one happy family with good values who all love each other. But Mom's supposed to be above all that. After all, she's the chairperson of the Regional Relocation Council. But as usual, she hates it when things aren't clear-cut. A white boy belongs in the white areas, and a black girl belongs in the black areas, and nothing's going to convince her otherwise. 
So even though they're obviously fugitives, she's turning the other way. The black anchor woman switches to a new item, the persecution in Colombia against religious parents. It's gotten worse. In the past, conservative religious parents were being asked questions about their beliefs. If the beliefs or values of the parent didn't measure up to the liberal beliefs of the federal government in the UCR, then the child would be taken away. Now, however, the government is doing away with the questions. Records, past deeds, etc. are used against new parents. Their children are taken away from them within days of leaving the hospital. I'm looking at Brad now and feeling sorry for him. I think I know him. At least I know myself. He'd be as lost and as unhappy without his girl as I am without Nona. It'd kill him to have her leave, kill him to marry some white girl, some woman he isn't a tiny bit attracted to. And by now, I'm so mad at Marjorie Garrison, Mom, and bullies in general, that all I want to do is stand up in the middle of this cafe and tell them all to get a life. What the heck do they want Brad to do? Go back to a place that accepts him and his marriage, but will persecute him for his beliefs? It's hard for people who don't fit neatly into categories. Wonder what Mom will do if I marry Nona. Wonder what the local council will do. Heck, Mom's their boss. Maybe she'd lighten up, create some programs to bring the races together. But what if she doesn't? Would I want to live on the reservation? Heck, Mom might change her mind, but later rather than sooner. And what would Nona and me do in the meantime? Be living sacrifices? Live among the whites and suffer just to prove a point? I tell Charlie to get up. My ass is killing me from all this damn sitting. You're not finished eating yet, he says. I didn't say I was finished. I said I gotta stretch my legs. Don't go hiding out in the john, he says, and moves his legs to let me pass. I start walking towards the garrisons and Bradley and his wife. I don't look behind me because I know Mom's going to give me one of her looks. When I reach the table, Brad smiles at me so kindly I feel like crying. Remember me? I say. Mike McMasters. You went to school with my cousin Bobby. Heard you went to some college in California. I went to UW in Laramie. Bobby's cousin? Yeah, I remember. How you doing? I'm cool, I say. This your wife? Yeah, he says. Jody. Met her when I went to New York. New York, huh? I stretch out my hand, but she doesn't take it. She gives me one of these if-looks-could-kill stares, takes the baby, and walks out of the cafe into the cold. Lord knows what they've gone through in New York. You went there to teach, right? He nods. I shrug. Guess you had to give that up, huh? A sigh escapes his lips as he turns to glance at the exit door. I could take the daily mocking and sneering, he says. Not Jody, though. But the liberals seem intent on destroying us. Not just our livelihoods, but our lives. His mom is staring at him, but she's not saying anything. Just staring as if he brought all the trouble on himself. I've seen some of their television on satellite, I say. Seems we Christians are all cruel, hateful, ignorant, or deluded. A curse on the land, Brad says with a half-smile. I don't know. I guess I thought it was my purpose to do something for our people across the border. Some guerrilla fighter I am, huh? You tried, I say. His mother groans, but says nothing. Her glance passes me and darts towards my mother, who sends back a reassuring nod. But, like I say, Brad continues, 
I could put up with all the emotional persecution and the cruel stuff they say about us in the media. Even when they started forbidding Bible believers to work in teaching, medical, or the legal professions. I learned to hide my faith. I went to the home churches instead of the liberal mainstream ones. But when we had the baby, well, the minister at the church we attended, you have to attend one of them to look like you believe in the liberal agenda, well, he saw us reading a Bible together when he visited Jody in the hospital. He was gay, and you know how hateful they get about the Bible. Next thing you knew, the government people came trying to take... He burst into tears. I try not to flinch, but I suppose I do just a bit. Because it's hard to see a Wyoming guy cry. Besides, he's telling me, a relative stranger, his life story. And we Wyoming rancher types just don't go crying like that. Seems like such a New York touchy-feely kind of thing to do. You can come on over any time, I say. And I realize I'm trying to find some way to tell him that I'm dating a full-blooded Indian girl from the reservation, and I'm probably going to be in the same boat as him one of these days. I gesture towards the door. Jody can come, too. She is kind of tired, Brad says. I understand. Long trip from New York. Anyway, call me when you can. We Christians are all one family. I write my name and number on a napkin. Then I walk away. I'm getting a lot of looks from my fellow patrons. Mostly angry ones. These folks may read their Bible, but most of them are as racist as they come. But among the hateful glares, there are a few of approval. And this surprises me. Heck, who'd think one could find even one understand and heart in this place? But people have sons and daughters, and life gets complicated, I guess. I find myself thinking that Brad must have had moments like this in New York City, where unexpectedly he'd meet some Christian, and they'd give each other some secret sign of reassurance. Mom looks like she could kill. When I return to our table, she says, You're trying to embarrass me, aren't you? And all I can think is, Mom wants me to marry someone like her. And the thought of marrying a woman who from day one has been taught that the world revolves around her pretty much sickens me. I could see my future, and what I saw didn't look appetizing. Give me your car keys, bro, I say. I'm looking at Dad when I say this, and he's trying to evade my eyes. But I'm thinking that maybe I was born into the world to fall in love with Nona and to help people like Brad and Jody. You hear me, Charlie? The keys. Why you need them, he says, biting into his apple pie. I gotta go see Nona. Gonna ask her to marry me. At this, Mom starts coughing, like she's choking on her own bile or something. But Charlie doesn't mind. He throws me his keys. Tell her hi for me. And that was our story. For those who may want to challenge the authenticity of my Wyoming accent, I'm going to claim decades of cultural drift. Clearly, by the time this story happens, the accents will all be different. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. We have no ad or promo this week, but I want to take a moment to plug another one of my favorite podcasts. Dakota Ring Theater is radio theater with an old-school sensibility, giving a witty homage to the classic pulps without being parody. I've talked about them before, but not in a while. They have two running serials, The Red Panda Adventures, about Canada's greatest mass crime fighter, The Red Panda, this is very evocative of the shadow. But these days, I'm slightly more entertained by Blackjack Justice, 
a more down-to-earth gumshoe series in the style of Mickey Spillane. Both of them are written by Greg Taylor, with good storylines and really snappy dialogue, and have top-notch voice acting and production values. You should check them out at Dakota Ring Theater, that's all one word, dot com. So, we're doing feedback now on Escape Pod 145, Instead of a Loving Heart. This was Jeremy Tolbert's steampunkish, World War II-ish story about an artist turned to a robotic servant by a mad scientist. This one got a very mixed response, sometimes from the same people. We did get several responses that it fell flat or came across as cliched. Darth Shmoo told us he turned it off early. Quote, Usually I would have finished it, but there was the weird robot and the mad scientist and the lady with the blimp, and none of it felt remotely interesting. Many other people thought the story was a lot of fun and enjoyed the imagery. Serana said, I was delighted by the story. The plot was a bit cliched, but in the case of steampunk, this evokes nostalgia rather than annoyance. Or as Void Menachel put it, it managed to be shallow retro sci-fi while still having a sense of depth. And it was our moderator, Russell, who split things down the middle and said, As this one started out, I was really warming up to the idea of hating it. It was just falling flat with me. Then, as it went on, it snuck up on me. I didn't absolutely fall in love, but I liked it. And C. Jorat seemed to agree. He said, In some ways, it's what I think of as an Ely story. Some wild ideas, nice action set pieces, and an overall feeling of fun. I sometimes suspect that Steve's affection for this kind of story sometimes leads him to select a weaker piece because it hits his buttons. Thanks to everyone for their feedback. As for C. Jorat's comment, I'm not insulted at all by the weaker story bit. Rather, I really enjoyed that characterization of my tastes, and I'm oddly flattered that people think of some works as Ely stories. I should really get back to writing more myself sometime. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So share us anywhere you like, but don't sell or change us. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, we hope you'll tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. And you can buy collectible CDs and DVDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from the novelist and playwright James Arthur Baldwin. He said, It demands great spiritual resilience not to hate the hater whose foot is on your neck, and an even greater miracle of perception and charity not to teach your child to hate. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. <laughs>